Welcome to Wardier, conversations from the program in criminal justice policy and management at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today we're going to start a little bit differently. We're going to be talking about human trafficking, and I thought I'd start with a story. For a long time, I was a volunteer rape crisis counselor in emergency rooms. So when people came in to do a rape kit, meaning get evidence collected, I supported them through that process. And one woman in particular really sticks with me. It was a Sunday night and I was called into BMC, Boston Medical Center, which is kind of the provider of last resort here. And when the ER calls you, all they tell you is the age and gender of the person. So they tell me I'm going to be with a 42-year-old woman. So I get to the hospital with only that information in hand. And the nurse walks up to me and tells me we've got a quote-unquote frequent flyer on our hands who's exhibiting drug-seeking behavior because she says she's in pain. And it turns out this case is just an absolute shit show. When I walk in the room, and I'm going to call the survivor Patty, and just to paint a picture for you, she is your old-school, old-school South Boston Irish kind of woman. Um, She's missing the entire front uh, top row of her teeth, and she's a little out of it. And I really can't connect. I'm not sure that she's going to be able to get the kit. I'm not sure she's in a state to consent to it. Um, And she's really agitated and upset. And she ends up getting in a screaming match with the nurse who has a pretty short reserve of patience for her. They refuse to do the kit. And Patty's actually ultimately removed from the hospital from security. So I remember calling my supervisor and leaving that case just feeling like a like I completely failed her. So then fast forward just a few days later that week, I get a call to the Brigham, which is a calmer hospital, sort of more resources. The nurses um, are a little bit less burnt out. And they tell me that I'm going to meet a 42-year-old woman. And I didn't think much of that, to be honest. But when I walked in the room at the Brigham, who is it sitting there but Patty? And she's in a, a better state and the hospital doesn't have any preconceived notions of her. So she's getting really compassionate care. And we end up spending the next three to four hours together while she gets the rape kit done. And she tells me a little bit about what's going on in her life and what was going on on Sunday. So she tells me that uh, she's there because her boyfriend is abusive. She has a substance use disorder. And as a result of that, she's, she's lost custody of her son. And her son was born at BMC, and that's why she goes to that hospital for care, because they took good care of her and her son there. And all she has now is this boyfriend who beats her. He took a brick to her front teeth, which is why they're not there anymore. And he withholds drugs to control her and to make her have sex with other men. And that's what had happened on Saturday, and that's why she was trying to get a rape kit. And Patty had incredible warmth. You could tell just how much she loved and missed her son. She was so kind to me. She had unbelievable strength. Um, It takes an incredible amount of fortitude to be kicked out of a hospital and to walk back into another one just two days later because you want the option to access justice. And she had just a lot of complex needs. We were actually able to get her shelter housing by the end of her visit to the ER, which is unbelievably rare because emergency housing and just housing in general is really scarce. 
And don't get me wrong, I have no illusions that that solved her issues. That was a great stroke of luck, but um, that certainly wasn't going to be a panacea for her. And to be honest, because this counseling is anonymous, I walked out of that room and I have no idea what happened to her afterwards. I have no idea if she even made it to the shelter, um, but it's very likely that in the longer term, she ended up returning to that boyfriend um, and back into the, into the shadows. And I tell you this story because we are going to be talking a lot about the law and policy of human trafficking, but we need to remember that the point of all of that law is to shine light on the shadows where Patty lives. So with that, I'll bring in my conversation with Julie Dahlstrom, who directs Boston University Law School's Immigrants' Rights and Human Trafficking Program. So here's my conversation with Julie Dahlstrom. Here's what I'm thinking for how to structure this, but feel free to tell me that I'm I'm wrong. My thesis around human trafficking is that there's this tension of both it's understood to be really bad and mm-hmm. yet people don't really understand what it is. So there's this, it's sort of ubiquitous and not understood at yes. all. And then that leads to it's at the same time being inadequately addressed, but also seems to be omnipresent and flexibly applied. Yes, um, that's so very well, very well said. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Well, I would, you know, I spent, I spent the weekend reading um, your articles and, and, and lots of other stuff. So I guess if we could just start with, before we get into any legal definitions of just sort of setting the table of what is human trafficking from the common sense, yeah. lowest common denominator of what people agree on human trafficking is. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Skylar. So, so I'll just jump in. What is trafficking? Broadly, broadly seen, trafficking is a form of exploitation. I think we often think that there's a conflation between, say, smuggling, coming into the country, and trafficking. But generally, trafficking is thought of as uh, explo- exploitation in the form of work, so forced labor, forced work, or exploitation in the form of sex, so often forced commercial sex, so sex in exchange of something. That something might be money. It might be something else. It might be housing or it, it could be drugs, and, and that, that that sex, that commercial sex is forced, coerced, or there's some element of fraud. So trickery, deception, or coercion is at play. So I, I don't want to get too far out ahead of my skis. Let's talk about sort of the prevalence that we can yeah. try to sort of make, put, put some numbers on, even if they're, they're yeah. probably underreported. And then can you give us a sense of actually what does a labor trafficking situation look like, and what does a typical, I put that in quotes, sex trafficking situation look like. That's great. So let's talk about prevalence uh, with the understanding that these numbers, you know, it is very difficult to quantify trafficking generally. What we know is that labor trafficking is a global problem. The International Labor Organization does offer some general statistics. They say that an estimated 40 million people are in what they call modern slavery. We can talk about what that is, but they define that um, to mean both trafficking and forced marriage. And there has been an intersection between marriage and domestic violence and and trafficking. So that means that we're talking about, you know, 5.4 million, I'm sorry, 5.4 victims of of slavery for every 1,000 people. And one, one out of every four of those people are children. That's globally. But, you know, what does that look like in the U.S.? I can tell you what, what, what the nature of prosecutions look like here in the U.S. So we have in 2020, the Human Trafficking Institute keeps 
statistics and does an annual report. And so they indicated that there were 579 active trafficking prosecutions. Of those, 5% were labor trafficking. So, so only a, a small per percentage. We also have civil cases that are moving forward. And there were 200 active civil trafficking lawsuits, 91 of which were sex trafficking. So, so many more involved forced labor. So, you know, that's that's what, seven, 700 or so matters. Um, that means it's happening here. That's likely the tip of the iceberg. We might be interested what's happening in Massachusetts in one state. Since 2007, there have been over 3,000 reports of trafficking to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, and 232 of those contacts happened in 2020 at, with about 81 trafficking cases being reported. So that is the very tip of the iceberg. You know, I think what we know is, is victims generally do not self-identify often do not report. And I think what we saw under the Trump administration was a significant diminution of both calls and prosecutions moving forward. And so I think we're still facing a lack of identification and a low low number of cases relative to the incidence of the... Of the That's really very helpful. Thank you. I, I love how you just took it from, you know, global all the way down to Massachusetts. I, I am... I obviously in Massachusetts, I practice in Massachusetts and I think that the world revolves around the state. So that's very, <laughs> so, okay. And then in terms of what, could you paint a picture of kind of, you know, some of those, put some flesh to those, to those numbers. What does it actually look like on the ground? Ground, it, it varies. And I, you know, I hesitate to say the traditional or typical case, because obviously, as you know, there is no typical case, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. In Massachusetts, we also see a number of cases that involve domestic workers. It, it's quite interesting. Trafficking is a crime that often depends on the, the kind of local context. And, and in Boston, for example, we have a variety of wonderful medical uh, facilities that provide excellent medical treatment. And so what we, what one of the things that we see is that individuals are traveling from abroad to, to Boston to get that medical treatment. And as they do, they bring their domestic workers with them and actually receive visas for, for their domestic workers to engage in that work while they're here. And often a pattern of exploitation that, that starts abroad, whether that's physical violence, sexual violence, and threats or, or insults continues here in the U.S. I think often in those circumstances, we see that passports are taken. So person doesn't have access to identity documents. And, and may have a deportation threats, may be told that, you know, if you leave, you won't have this visa. The visa is dependent often on the employer or more, more aggressively that you will be actively deported. I will say too, you know, there are cases where people can leave, you know, can leave the home or the house. And I think that's an, a common misconception, but it's the fear of deportation or the fear of some other form of harm that keeps them coming back and engaging in the work. So I think in the domestic work context, that is an example, although we, we do see a number of cases um, that look like that. In the sex trafficking case case uh, context, we get referrals from law enforcement largely and from survivor-led programs. We worked on a case where, where survivors were working throughout apartments and the individual that were running these apartments were posting up online. And then, you know, they were seeing 10 to 12 states or, or buyers per day providing commercial sex, you know, in very poor conditions with bed bugs, fearing deportation. I should note that this is a crime that impacts U.S. citizens as well. I think often there's a sense that trafficking involves international trafficking. And it's important to note that it impacts, you know, those who have documentation, those who, who don't, as well as children. Thank you. That is very helpful. I, yeah, I mean, it, it, I know it's hard to 
to to tell sort of one story that might encapsulate sort of what this looks like. Okay, so, and I could share, I don't know if it's helpful, but I could share with you, I mean, I think part of my work is complexifying what the, the, the trafficking crime looks like. So I could also share with you, you know, a public case that around, that's just like a more complicated portrait of what the crime is and kind of what, you know, victims or survivors look like, but I don't know yeah. if now it's, it's time, but. No, that would be, I mean, I can always move it around. That would be great because I think we're going to get into that. So yeah, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. I mean, I, What's quite interesting with what I find interesting about trafficking work is I think there is a, sim a simplicity that people come to this issue. You know, Catherine McKinnon famously said no one defends trafficking. I think there's, you know, moral condemnation that flows from this trafficking frame. But I think once you enter into it, you understand that it's it's quite complex and and also also that criminal legal intervention is often quite a blunt instrument that isn't able to parse out that complexity or provide adequate or adequately really respond. But I'll give you an example of that. Uh, several years ago, there was a prosecution of a, a defendant named Raymond Jeffries. He was known to be incredibly violent to both, you know, minors and adults who whom he forced to engage in, in commercial sex throughout the Commonwealth and also Commonwealth of Massachusetts and also beyond in neighboring states. But in the prosecution of this case, a number of people were charged, including two victims or survivors of trafficking with whom he worked, some of whom had children with him. And as it ended up, one of those individuals, one of the victims who was charged, she was charged for transporting a minor with trafficking. Ultimately, those charges um, were dismissed and and she she entered into a plea deal for lesser charges. But, you know, in, in that case, I think many prosecutors saw that as a success, as an example of kind of a successful diversion from the criminal system. But she, in fact, as uh, related to this, this criminal case, retained the charge on her record. She couldn't be near near schools, although she had a child couldn't access technology, had profound barriers in terms of her ability to sort of step forward and move move forward with her life. And, and so I think what it demonstrates, and there were a number of examples in this particular case, is, is the question of whether criminal intervention provides real solutions. So for those, those victims who testified, they didn't receive criminal restitution. They received very few kind of services in, in, in the course of the case. For those who were criminally charged, they may receive ultimately kind of lesser sentences, but still the, the stain of this criminal record stays with them. And in this case, the, the defendant was sentenced um, to, to over 30 years. So I think prosecutors would call this a success, but I think more, more largely, I guess the question is, is, is this a success? Yeah, there's certainly a lot to unpack there around, around the role I guess the difficulty of of who your witnesses are and 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 sort of there's this intermediary level where you you could have people that are are both victims of abuse and perpetrating abuse. So that's very helpful. I want to talk a little bit before we get um too deep into the sort of stories yeah, yeah. about legal remedies. So can you just sort of describe briefly what the legal framework is? I know it's relatively new that is meant to address trafficking. Yes. Yeah, so so the, the remedies in terms of the trafficking context are relatively new. So Congress in 2000 passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act to establish new crimes. There were crimes on the books. So, you know, we had the 13th Amendment. We had involuntary servitude statutes that had been passed um, in 1940. But what Congress was finding was they were insufficient. So having an involuntary servitude framework, criminal framework, wasn't sufficient to get at the conduct. There was no sex traffic crime at the time. There was only the Mann Act. 
And so in 2000, Congress passed a statute that did a number of things. So it, it established new crimes. So it established the sex trafficking crime. It also established a crime called forced labor, which was in response to a U.S. Supreme Court case looking at involuntary servitude. And in that in that case, the government argued that involuntary servitude should include cases of psychological coercion. And the court said no. And so essentially what Congress did was expand labor trafficking crimes to include psychological coercion. They defined this crime of forced labor to include cases that involved uh, psychological coercion, a broader range of cases. And then they also uh, created a new form of immigration relief that was aimed at undocumented survivors. So they said, you know, those non-citizens who are survivors of trafficking, they don't have available avenues for, for immigration relief and may fear deportation. And it's important that they be able to step forward. That legislation was bipartisan. So, so what you see embedded in the T visa, which is that form of relief, is that not only do non-citizens have to show they're a victim of trafficking, but they also have to cooperate with law enforcement in order to obtain that benefit. And so what you see both in 2000 and moving forward is really a framework that prioritizes criminal legal responses. So cooperation with law enforcement as the means to access protection. And what's happened moving forward from 2000 is that in 2003 and 2008, what we saw is Congress establish a civil remedy, which has been very important in terms of embracing broader forms of, of trafficking and allowing plaintiffs to move forward in civil court in cases where, where prosecutors are unable or unwilling to move cases forward. And so what Congress did in that context is say, in forced labor, these sex trafficking offenses, et cetera, a plaintiff can bring a federal civil claim. And then in 2008 further, you can sue third parties who knowingly benefit from trafficking offenses. And so what we see is this wide array of remedies, criminal, you know, we have cr criminal responses, criminal legal responses, which are quite harsh with mandatory sentences, but we also see civil responses, which are quite robust. So in the civil context, we see, for example, the ability to get punitive damages, com compensatory damages, you know, with, uh, with a floor. And so, so a, a quite robust legal landscape. And I'll also mention that since 2000, all 50 states have passed trafficking statutes. So you see criminal offenses on the state, state side, you also see them federally. And as a result, we're seeing more prosecutions move forward. Before we get too far into sort of the uh, is the sort of next place I want to go just to sort of put my cards on the table. I am both like a, you know, I was a public defender. I'm a sort of newer generation, th third generation feminist, I guess I should say. But he, and I see you have Paul Butler's book in the background. So I imagine that. You, <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I so you raise a lot of interesting points about the role of the criminal system in addressing human trafficking. Yet human trafficking is one of the places where I find myself being the most like second wave feminist. And, and I wanted to kind of unpack that, I guess, with you, because I think one of the really interesting things about trafficking is what actually gets defined as trafficking mm -hmm. and whether or not sort of all commercial sex can fall un yeah. under this umbrella. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that debate. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So the question being, you know, is all commercial sex trafficking? And and feminists have done battle over this question for many years. So just to set up sort of the framework, when the trafficking definition was being defined, we had sort of the, the fight between largely what's called neo-abolitionists, so Catherine McKinnon and others, arguing that all commercial sex is both harmful and 
trafficking. So arguing that it should fit within this broader framework and in fact, arguing for a very broad legal definition of trafficking, right? And then we had other feminists arguing um, that no, that should not be, be, be trafficking, really arguing to distinguish between you know, consensual sex work and trafficking and and some defining trafficking in that context very narrowly and even in that context, not supporting like criminal legal intervention. But I think there are feminists who would say I would support criminal legal intervention for trafficking, but not for this broader array of of, of commercial sex that is is consensual. And so I think this battle is continuing to play out to modern day. I think what's interesting is we, I, we have pretty large popular consensus that commercial sex, so sex for fee, um, should not be criminalized. I think, you know, there is increasingly support to decriminalize um, sex for fee, common night walking, all of these offenses. In Massachusetts, there have been now a number of bills, um, as in other states, introduced to do that. But what we're seeing also is the same ideological um, debates playing out in state legislatures, with some arguing that Basically, all all trafficking offenses, all commercial sex offenses, should be uh, decriminalized. Kind of led by you know pro sex work proponents saying that criminal legal intervention at, at large is harmful. Any type of criminal legal intervention, and that coming up against largely abolitionists or feminists who are arguing that we need these trafficking statutes still in place, but arguing in favor of partial decriminalization. So there is actually consensus, I think, among these groups in terms of decriminalizing the commercial sex piece. But what, what we've seen here uh, in Massachusetts, I think in New York and some other places as well, is because there is um, quite a conflict happening between these two ideological approaches, sometimes that's been slowing down efforts at actually getting that partial decriminalization because the question is, what is the right approach? And the other thing I'll just add is we're seeing some states pass trafficking statutes that are more akin to kind of Catherine McKinnon's framing where trafficking is commercial sex. That has also happened in Massachusetts. So whereas federally trafficking, sex trafficking is defined to require force, fraud or coercion plus commercial sex. In Massachusetts, largely the definition is is centered around commercial sexual activity. So once you have shown the commercial sexual activity, there need not be force, fraud or coercion. What does that do? It makes it somewhat easier for prosecutors to prosecute these cases for victims when they are stepping forward. The cases are less dependent on their testimony, but it also very much broadens the um, the it broadens who is subject to criminal penalties. You know, from those kind of perpetrators who we that we think of as 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 those engaged in sex trafficking to victims themselves, right? And very much broadens discretion of of prosecutors in terms of who they see as, as trafficking, uh, trafficking victims. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading the case law here in Massachusetts, I've never, I've never been more acutely aware of how, how important it is to look at the list of things in the statute that might, that might count as in this case, human trafficking, because you could see how you might just add something to the list while you're drafting. And it, you know, it's like coercion then becomes this blanket category that can include a lot of stuff. And I, and I hadn't really thought about it until you just said that in some ways it, it makes prosecution easier, but it, it widens the category of people that can be prosecuted, which is really interesting. Um, well, this is, you know, it's a microcosm of what we're seeing in the trafficking space more generally, where, you know, we have these broadening concepts, the, the value of that, the protective value of that is that, you know, for victim survivors, if you broaden the concept of 
trafficking, then, you know, those who might receive protections might receive them in a broader variety of people may, may access them. An example is, you know, our, in Massachusetts, we have this broader trafficking, sex trafficking framework. We also have post-conviction relief. So, so trafficking survivors with convictions, if they meet this broader framework can, can qualify, which is a positive thing, but then those same survivors may be subject to the, the very criminal penalties under the trafficking, trafficking frame. So we have quite quite a large dichotomy in terms of how we think about this crime and responses. Which is, I also think is what's so interesting about, about trafficking, apart from the sort of the, the human element of it is from a legal perspective, it's an area of law that was basically created in the last like 22 years. And it seems to have been drafted in a lot of places like Massachusetts quite vague, quite broadly so that it's, I won't say vague because <laughs> just, it's constitutionally not as vague. That's what we've learned that, you know, but, but, but it's so broad that there's just so many places that we could take it. Right. And you could see that this is a law that's still evolving. Okay. So I think this leads nicely into talking about, you know, we've, we now have an understanding of what the legal frameworks or remedies are. We've talked about how hard it is to really sort of pin down a hard definition of trafficking. And it, and as you know, those two things would combine to create a situation in which there's lots of novel ways in which these laws are being used. So I guess let's just cut straight to the, to the meaty part, which is what is exploitation creep and what does it mean relative to, to human trafficking law? I, sh I should say first, you know, what's interesting too about trafficking is we, we, we might say there is this core trafficking types of cases, and yet we still do, do see challenges in moving those cases forward. So I just want to emphasize that we still do see, you know, sex trafficking survivors coming forward, labor trafficking survivors, what we think of trafficking, and those cases not essentially either moving forward in the civil or criminal context for a variety of reasons. But apart from that, what I think is interesting, we also see what Janie Chuang, Professor Janie Chuang has called exploitation creep. What is that? What is exploitation creep? Essentially what, what she looked at the international trafficking definition and early on said, you know, she was seeing this expansion in the concept of trafficking in a number of ways. The one way was forced labor. So this idea that psychological coercion and, and engagement with labor, she thought that was an expansion beyond the core definition internationally of trafficking. I think that's right. I also think that she was had a lot of foresight and seeing where the, the trafficking definition would essentially go. And so in the U.S., what I argue is that we've seen since 2000, we have a, a pretty robust legal framework, and we have seen an expansion in terms of both the types of actors held accountable for trafficking crimes, but also how trafficking has been interpreted in different contexts. And what does that mean? That means that um, there are many new and different faces of trafficking. And some of that is, is really good news. And some of that is um, complex news. We'll kind of talk about, you know, what are the implications of it? But what does that look like? It looks like, for example, um, you know, who is a trafficker? I think, you know, Congress has come back and redefined, for example, buyers of sex with children or buyers of sex with those who are trafficked as also a perpetrator of trafficking. So there have been sort of new visions of who fits within that framework. There have been new actors. So Congress in 2008 said that third parties who knowingly benefit from trafficking um, should be held civilly liable and also can be held criminally liable. And it's a, a new frame of, of trying to hold these entities with with money, with large purse strings accountable. And so what we've seen from that is that 
Hotels have now been been sued successfully. The, one of the largest categories of civil litigation now is against hotels that, quote, knowingly benefit from the trafficking. And that's ranged from a case in Massachusetts in the case of Lisa Riccio against a hotel where the, where the hotel or motel owners in this case actually did know and engage with the trafficker, right? And and there was that personal connection. They um, Back the, to that, when, when you were, when I was reading about that case, it was like at first, you thought, oh, this might be a bit of a stretch. What do you mean they were knowingly benefiting? And then those people just sounded horrible. Like, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, they they watched this woman get dragged back into her hotel room. And I, I was convinced. I was like, yeah, if, yeah those people are liable. <laughs> So it, that seems like a straightforward case, but yeah. I think what we're also seeing now is is an explosion of litigation against hotels. And this question of what is it to knowingly benefit is a Marriott who, where there may be commercial sex occurring, um, you know, what is knowledge? Anyway, litigating all of these questions and asking, you know, to what extent should all of, should these third parties be held liable? We're also seeing online platforms. So so Congress went back and indicated that a barrier to sue online platforms, the 230 of the Communications De- Decency Act in FOSTA-SESTA, which was a, a fairly controversial federal law that was passed uh, that to remove Section 230 in, in, the, in the context of trafficking cases. And so what we're seeing is also plaintiffs, prosecutors being able to, to step forward and sue online platforms. And you might think, well, that's that seems like a natural evolution as trafficking moves online, which which indeed may maybe it is, we could talk about the implications of it. But I think we're also seeing incredibly novel moves in that space. And I'll tell you a couple of them. In the pornography setting, we're actually seeing sex trafficking uh, statutes play an important role. Recently, plaintiffs sued Pornhub, arguing that child pornography or child sexual abuse imagery itself is sex trafficking. So the upload of the the of the image of the child, the sexual image of the child is a commercial sex act, hence it's sex trafficking. Those cases have just been permitted to move forward. So they're they're at initial stages federally, but but courts, judges are saying, yes, this does facially seem to meet the standards laid out in the in the sex trafficking context. And what does that mean? That means um the potential for for really broad civil liability against against online platforms for really new conduct. You know, I think when when we thought thought initially about the sex trafficking statute or responses, we weren't necessarily thinking about uploading child pornography, but indeed that that might be the case now. And then finally, I think we're seeing state statutes broaden, as in Massachusetts, to address a, a broader variety of conduct, which we talked about earlier. So all commercial sex might be a sex trafficking. And then we're seeing creative litigators. So in the context of say, a Harvey Weinstein arguing that the sexual assault of Katie and Noble of other victims was indeed sex trafficking because it's a sex sex act in exchange of something of value. Um, what is that exchange of something of value? The promise of a, a role in a in a film, the promise of job advancement, what some have called the sort of casting couch, you know, situation now now does fall under the sex trafficking statute as well. So so those those plaintiffs or in other context advocates are arguing that, that domestic violence and in fact sexual assault might fit within the trafficking context as well. So I think largely one of the things we're seeing is because the sex trafficking statute civilly especially is a pretty robust form of relief. We're seeing these deficiencies in other settings and litigators look to the sex trafficking statute to see whether there, there are arguments, viable arguments that can be made um, at sex trafficking or labor trafficking more generally. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I think the Harvey Weinstein case is the one where I started to think, I think we might be getting to the line here. 
And and yet I, I think there's totally understandable reasons why plaintiff's attorneys and survivors are are turning to the trafficking laws as opposed to ones that, you know, might be available to someone if you were just to purely define it as sexual assault. So what you know, what are the deficiencies in the sort of old laws that are causing people to turn to trafficking just to, to get relief? Yes. So so this is the issue. You know, I ended up interviewing a number of, of litigators that were bringing these cases and asking them, you know, essentially, why did you turn to the trafficking statute? And and the number uh, their responses were were somewhat consistent in pointing to deficiencies in existing sexual assault in this context remedies. So so one one deficiency is statutes of limitation. So in the Weinstein context, in other contexts, what we're seeing is is victims or plaintiffs come forward more than five, six years after the offense. They're unable to bring civil suits under existing remedies and they're looking around. And so in the Weinstein case, in fact, the litigators of that case said, you know, they were they were actually looking around for statutes. Someone found the trafficking statute, has a 10-year statute of limitations, and said, hey, maybe we can fit fit, fit this conduct with, within the statute. So I think that's one of the reasons you also get into federal court. And some in some contexts, state court judges have been less um less generous in the context of civil suits. You also are able to sue third parties. So again, we have, you know, looking at who you can re recover from the ability to, to sue a third party who knowingly benefits from the trafficking and get pretty robust civil damages. And in, in other contexts, they may be capped. And so, you know, for all of those reasons, we see some litigators pushing for these, these trafficking cases. So we've seen that in the case of Harvey Weinstein, in the case of Bruce Weber, who was another journalist, sorry, who was another photographer who was engaged in um, sexual abuse of those who sort of would come in and seek out gigs with, with him. Um, in the case of Jean Lopez, you know, those who have been involved in the Olympics and sexual abuse, arguing that these harms can be considered trafficking. And, you know, some might argue it seems very far afield. Others um, might say, well, it actually, when you're thinking commercial sex, sex in exchange for something of value, isn't, you know, getting a, a job within the film industry, these people who have tremendous uh, power in that space, that does actually feel like commercial sex. So what are the harms of expanding these remedies to these situations? I would say the values um, are for individual plaintiffs, right? And even McKinnon herself wrote an op-ed and, and, and called the trafficking suit involving Katie and Noble, one of the plaintiffs, you know, quote, a brave new world in terms of, of, the, of, the, of the potential for remedies in that space. But I think it, what it does is it, it turns us away from, from remedies that offer real value, from naming these crimes what they are, which is sexual assault, from making those systems actually work for survivors. So I, I think what it does by default is it shows us some of the deficiencies like statutes of limitations, et cetera. And, and now victims, plaintiffs, others are going back into state court and trying to remedy the, those by extending statutes of limitations in, in other settings. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, to the to the sort of again these sort of definitional problems that we have i heard a, a story recently i don't remember what um publication it was but around the role of sex trafficking in like QAnon recruiting and like super right-wing fixations with child sex trafficking like pizzagate and things like that yeah. 
I totally fine if you have no opinions on this. I just was curious how you think that fits into this landscape. I mean, it's just there's just so much going on here. It's interesting the 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 focus on conspiracy theories involving child sex trafficking. I think what it brings to the fore for me is that this is is trafficking is a space where there is pretty uniform condemnation, and that that condemnation is often funneled in support of causes that have harmful impacts and that that power, you know, that power actually can be can be funneled for good. Potentially, we're seeing some of that in the context of, you know, uh, perhaps a focus on, on trafficking in the case of Harvey Weinstein and others where there can be positive outcomes, but it can also be tremendously misused, both for overly, say, carceral responses that may not get at the root causes, but also here to you know, to 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 support these these causes that that are deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just was, you know, that was just like a nugget that I wanted. Yes, to <laughs> absolutely. Here's another nugget I just am curious about. You are based in Massachusetts. Our new U.S. attorney has said that one of her, Rachel Rollins, has said that yes. one of her sort of main focuses in that role is going to be human trafficking. What do you think that means? What do you think is the promise of that? Just sort of re reactions to seeing someone in sort of federal leadership say that they're going to take an active, more active position on this. I think it's really exciting. We just had Rachel Rollins speak at, at BU as well, where she also emphasizes deep commitment to trafficking work where she articulated you know, when a survivor walks in the building, I will immediately meet with them. And also noted, you know, it starts at the top and and that she has a tremendous role in in leadership within that office. So I think it's it's very, very exciting and very welcome. But I also think what is quite interesting is that over time there has always been a bipartisan commitment to combat trafficking. So what I'm looking to see is beyond this commitment, what does it mean in terms of policies? And, and you know, for example, does it mean that for immigrant survivors, when they engage with her office, that they are, you know, that they receive protections, that there there's these special, you know, visas that their office can take a role in, in terms of issuing certification to determine that that person is a victim and helpful. You know, do they have a robust policy around that? What happens when someone is a non-citizen with an order of removal and steps forward with their office or has criminal liability like so many survivors do? I think it's in those spaces that, that they're going to have to make difficult judgment choices about who to prosecute and about who to believe, essentially. And I would like to think and I feel very heartened that they're going to make the right choices in those cases. But I'm, I'm excited to see what that means because it will will need to mean concrete policies to make individuals feel comfortable stepping forward and engaging with her office. Yeah. And it'll be an interesting, I you know, I, I know that you flagged it earlier as well, and I don't want to gloss over. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the challenges are of bringing these cases when you have, even when you have a great deal of sort of institutional buy-in, right? And you, you talked earlier about, I mean, you know, the AG's office here in Massachusetts has a human trafficking division and, and has, you mentioned, you know, the number of cases that they've taken. And yet these are really hard cases to, to bring, to win, et cetera. And so I think it will be a useful exercise. Hopefully some justice will be brought, but also it'll be a useful exercise to, to, illuminate like okay if you have top-down buy-in to address trafficking and we're still struggling to you know bring survivors to the stand or or whatever it is then then we should know that right because then we would know what to what to work on 
I think that's right. And and you are correct. You, you know, we've been lucky to have with the, our state AG's office a quite robust approach. And, and, and that means a number of things. So one of the things they've done that I'd like to see federally happen is, is their response isn't just prosecutorial. So they have someone who's working on policy, who's thinking about legislative responses, who's thinking more broadly outside of the criminal system. So I think that's really important. I also think that despite that very robust response and desire to see these cases, they have not seen many labor trafficking cases move forward. And I think federally, we've seen that as well. So it's going to take more than just leadership within an office to inspire trust, to inspire individuals to step forward and engage. And we're also going to need to have training and greater understanding from within about once these cases, you know, do come forward, you know, how do we move them forward through the system? Are there other policies or practices that you would like to see either, you know, from state actors, federal actors? Yes. In terms of reform, the exciting news is there's a lot to be done. First, we've seen a move towards post-conviction relief in the trafficking space. So recognizing that many survivors have engaged with the criminal system at some point, they have criminal charges perhaps relating to that, relating to their victimization, and that there should be avenues for vacature, for expungement, sealing, et cetera. And so we've seen now states pass those those laws, which is really exciting. You know, the next step is the next step, maybe decriminalization, but we could talk about that. But the next step in post-conviction is also recognizing that there's a variety of different offenses. So often when those initial post-conviction statutes were being passed, you could, you could, for example, vacate a sex for fee conviction. But I think there's now a greater recognition that there may be a variety of different criminal charges that individuals have, like, you know, larceny, like, you know, carrying guns related to the to the trafficking and so to have a broader array of offenses available to vacate. And so New York, for example, the first state that engaged in post-conviction relief has now gone back and broadened their statute. Massachusetts, it's still fairly narrow in, in response to challenges in the legislative process. And, and the hope is that, that we can continue to broaden that outward. There's also currently no avenue for, or very limited avenues for federal vacature. And so if, if there's a federal offense, so if that survivor, for example, was charged with trafficking or charged with other related crimes, but was a victim, there there may be few options for them. So that's one area of reform. The other area of reform is around the T-Visa. So for non-citizen survivors of trafficking who are stepping forward, Congress, you know, 2000 passed this really robust program, 5,000 visas available every year. It was sought to really get at this problem. And since then, we've seen very low numbers of applicants, low low grant rates, um, fewer than 1,200 of these visas each year. That's the kind of height uh, of the numbers um, are granted. And so there's a number of reasons why that is, but one of them is just around adjudications of these visas. We, we saw under the Trump administration specifically uh, narrowing in terms of how, how the requirements were interpreted and greater denials and requests for evidence, greater delays. So that if you're a non-citizen, you're applying for this special form of relief that's supposed to help you because you were cooperative in the, in the process. It could take you two, three years to obtain it or even to to be denied and to get an answer. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of reform that needs to happen in that space. And then beyond that, I think we have to think about, you know, better solutions beyond the criminal um, system for survivors. We need to provide more robust supports. You know, housing remains a profound issue in terms of folks aging out of, of systems and also not having kind of viable options in terms of housing and other things. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Great. 
Is there anything I haven't asked about that you were expecting me to or that you think is important to talk about? You know, I, the only other thing I would say is I think that there's been in the last like five to 10 years, a, a movement towards recognizing the role that survivors should be playing in both like law reform efforts, but also leading, if there is an anti-trafficking movement, sort of leading what the next steps in this movement look like. And within the last 20 years, largely that effort was was not led by survivors. It was largely focused on, on criminal intervention as the solution to trafficking. And I think what is exciting is that we're seeing, you know, survivor-led organizations and movements ask for broader systems, ask for other um, more creative responses at this moment and and trying to envision them um, and trying to connect to other movements for racial justice, for labor rights, for, for other things. So we're at a really pivotal moment, I think, in terms of envisioning what the response to trafficking could look like. And we do have fairly robust legal landscape if it can function well to protect survivors. Okay. So, okay, great. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I well, really thanks for reaching it. out. Yeah, it's great yeah. to connect. And so, if there are other ways I can be helpful, just let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was really nice to meet you and well, I'll be in touch. That sounds great. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this episode of Wardeer. Thanks so much to the folks at PCJ and to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. 